Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucas. And I'm Justin. Thank you so much for tuning in. If this is your first time listening to us, thank you and welcome. If you like what you hear, then please hit the subscribe button, leave us a review and rating on whatever platform you are listening on. Also, if you want to donate to this channel, there's a link in the description of the episode that will take you to the corresponding page. A small monthly donation equal to a convenience store snack will help us to up our production value as well as allow us to do some new spinoffs on the channel. And don't forget to check out our Facebook page, where we interact with all of you and talk about other things going on in the music world. Now that that's out of the way, let's get into the real stuff. All right, Lucas, this week we are talking about the legendary band Metallica. Yes, the biggest metal band of all time, the ones responsible for making truly heavy metal a worldwide phenomenon. The structure of this episode is that I want to look at the entirety of Metallica's career. In some episodes, we're going to be looking at very specific points. But in this episode, I want to look at everything because Metallica is a very, very diverse band. Um, They've had so many changes and evolutions over the years. The burden that comes with being the biggest metal band in the world is the accompanying expectations. And the band has made some very controversial creative and personal decisions due to this expectation. You'd be hard-pressed to find a Metallica fan that loves all eras of the band equally. Even yourself. Yes. I mean, there's even parts of the where I'm just like, over time I've grown to love them more, but there's still definitely eras that I treasure more than others. You can make a lot of comparisons between Metallica and Star Wars. Uh, This was something that I had thought about before, and the more I thought about it, the more that this made sense. Both started with an immortal run of records, or in Star Wars cases, movies, followed by a newer era that started with a blockbuster, with Metallica that being the Black Album and with Star Wars being the Phantom Menace. But then they slowly left a sour taste in fans' mouths, with Load and Reload doing that to Metallica fans and Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith doing that with Star Wars fans. Then, after a long break, they returned to what seemed like former glory. But there are the people that are accusing them of repeating past successes without trying anything new. In the case of Metallica's Death Magnetic and Hardwired to Self-Destruct and Star Wars' new sequel trilogy. So it's interesting to kind of see the similarities. They kind of were both the biggest in the world in their respective areas. And when you're the biggest at something, there's there's a lot of baggage that comes with that. And so... What we're going to do in this episode is we're going to just look at all the phases of Metallica's career. And the songs that we're going to be talking about are going to be pulled from each era of the band. Who is Metallica? The core of Metallica is singer and rhythm guitar player James Hetfield and drummer Lars Ulrich. Kirk Hammett joined before recording their first album and has been the lead guitar player ever since. But he was not part of the founding group. Uh, Bass guitar position has shifted the most during the band starting with Cliff Burton, then Jason Newstead, and now we have Rob Trujillo. Oh, I love that guy. Yeah, he's pretty awesome. Uh, James and Lars are the leaders, though, and the band will continue on as long as they decide they want to. I kind of always like to think about, you know, which person, if they left the band, would mean that the band physically cannot go on. And for me, if either Lars or James said, I'm done, then Metallica's done. I could see a future... Without Kirk Hammond, obviously they've moved on several times with a different bass player. But James and Lars, they're, they're the heart of the band. And that's really where Metallica's story begins. Yes. Lars Ulrich was born in Denmark on December 26, 1963. 
at nine years old, he saw Deep Purple play in Copenhagen, and that's when he became obsessed with rock music, which was a really cool full circle when he got to induct Deep Purple into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame a few years ago. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, and then moved to California when he was 17 to try and focus on his music. In particular, he became fixated on the new wave of British heavy metal, the Nawabum. And particularly, there was a band called Diamond Head that he just became obsessed with. And so much so that he even followed them on tour. And after coming back from following them around, he decided that he was going to form his own band. And the first person to answer those classified ads was James Hetfield. And thus, Metallica was born. So, of course, we start off with this dynamic duo. Yes. And then who comes in next? So before we have any members come in, we have a, a man named Brian Slagle. Brian Slagle was the owner of Metal Blade Records, and Lars was able to convince them before he even had the band fully formed, before they had a name, before they had any songs recorded, he was able to convince them to let him play a song on their first compilation album, Metal Massacre. This is still in metal's infancy, and so these compilation albums were a big way for unknown bands to really get a good start. Hang on. So you're saying that Lars had already written and produced a song? No. That's the thing. He hadn't done anything. That's just how good of a salesman he was. Oh, my gosh. So I want to talk about Lars for just a second. Lars has been on the receiving end of lots of hate over the years from the metal community, either them lambasting his lack of drum skills or his sometimes obtrusive personality. But regardless of what others say of him, no one can deny that he was the driving force behind Metallica's success. He created the band. He recruited the members. He's the one that got their name. He got the name from a friend who had suggested either that or Metal Mania, and he was able to convince his friend that Metal Mania was the better name and that he would just take Metallica because he wanted to do his friend a solid. But then, of course, who's laughing now? Exactly. He traded tapes with everyone in the underground scene. He got them their first record deal. The list goes on. Without Lars, Metallica would have just been another band toiling in obscurity. Now that we have our two founding guys, we bring in Dave Mustaine. Yes. They recruit Dave Mustaine on lead guitar, and then very soon after that, they find Cliff Burton playing in the band Trauma. They saw him play live, and they were just blown away by his playing ability. They persuaded him to join the band on one condition, that they all move up from L.A. up to San Francisco. Why that's there? Because that's where Cliff lived, and he didn't feel like moving. <laughs> and they wanted him bad enough Got that it. they were willing to go up there to get him in the band because he was already established he was already in a band they were doing pretty well in the underground scene and really again credit to Lars being able to convince him to leave the band that he's already having success in to join this group of unproven teenagers who hadn't done anything who hadn't done anything yet (laughs) and yeah so it's just incredible so then they write their first album obviously yeah so they received an offer to join Megaforce Records to make that debut album but In order to do that, they had to travel from California to New York, and it did come at the expense of a key member. That person is? Dave Mustaine. One morning, he wakes up to see the rest of the band standing ominously over him. They told him he was out of the band and that he had to pack his things and leave immediately. So they pack his stuff and put him on a bus, I'm assuming? Yeah. he was. (laughs) Oh my goodness. It was brutal. They didn't even give him a ticket to fly home. They put him on a bus from New York to California. Do you know how long and miserable of a trip that would be? Especially back then. Oh, my gosh. Man. But 
on the flip side, things kind of turned out pretty good for Dave Mustaine. <laughs> yes, and we'll talk about that in another episode. Dave still is and was one of the greatest metal guitar players of all time. His alcoholism was what had gotten him in trouble with the band because the band, when they would get drunk, they got like really happy and giggly and just, you know, would have fun. But when Dave got drunk, he got aggressive and violent and was always getting in fights. And several times picked fights with the wrong people that almost got the band in very serious trouble. And the band just decided that it was enough. This did create a very vicious feud between Dave and the rest of the band. And one that wouldn't heal for nearly 30 years. And it even still left a scar. But then they go out and they find Kirk Hammett. Yes. The afternoon after Dave was fired, Metallica got Kirk Hammett. He was from a uh, fellow thrash band called Exodus, who ended up becoming a very big band in their own right. And with him in the lineup, they recorded that debut album, Kill 'Em All. This album is the origin point of thrash metal. It's a style of metal that mixes the lyrics and the technicality of the new wave of British heavy metal, but it has the speed and the aggression of punk music. Fast chugging riffs, blistering guitar solos, and songs about war, death, and metal came to define the thrash style and became the dominant sound of the underground metal scene in the 80s. So after that incredible first album, then what comes next? So Ride the Lightning comes the next year, and it is no sophomore slump. Uh, It shows an incredible growth and maturity from the youthful zeal on that debut. At this point, we're already experimenting with slower grooves. They were even starting to write ballads at this point, and yet they were still crafting some of the finest metal to ever be made. They were also writing some longer, more complex songs, something that would continue in their future albums, including the eight-minute instrumental Call of Cthulhu, which has Cliff Burton's fingerprints all over it. Their star was rising, and it hit that creative high mark on 1986's Master of Puppets. Which some people say is the greatest metal album of all time. It belongs in that uh, debate for sure. Um, Other albums that are constantly being thrown around is Slayer's Rain and Blood... Um, Black Sabbath's Paranoid, and Iron Maiden's Number of the Beast, among a few others. But those are usually the ones that are always going back and forth of people saying, no, this is the best metal album. No, this is the best metal album. But Master of Puppets is a flawless album from start to finish. I mean, there's not a bad track on there, not a bad moment on that record. And it really put them at the head of the underground scene. And it was only a matter of time before they were going to break big. Everyone knew it. Unfortunately, though, tragedy would strike before they could enjoy this new phase. And what happens? So on September 27, 1986, they're touring in Sweden. It's early in the morning, and Metallica's tour bus hits a patch of black ice. This causes the bus to flip over several times. Everyone on the bus just gets minor injuries, except for Cliff Burton, who was just in the wrong spot of the bus at the wrong time. He flew out the window when the bus flipped, and the bus landed on top of him, killing him instantly. And the guys saw this. They didn't see it happen, but they saw his feet sticking out from underneath the bus. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It was traumatic. The band was absolutely devastated, and they just didn't even know if they could continue. Like, Not only was he their brother, but he was an irreplaceable bass player. I mean, he has gone down as one of the greatest bass players, not just in metal, but of all time, period. It will never be matched. After a long series of deliberations, they concluded that Cliff wouldn't have wanted the band to die with him. And so they hired Jason Newsted as his replacement. But while he was now a new member of the band, he could never truly replace Cliff. And the band was brutal to him. 
They were always pulling pranks on him that always bordered the line of just being nasty and hateful. Like they would secretly tell people at parties that he was gay or they would have these big lavish dinners with tons of expensive drinks and then they would tell the waiter to leave it all on Jason's tab and just stuff like that. But he sticks around at least for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. The whole time he knew loud and clear that he was not Cliff. And the ultimate stab at Newstead came in their fourth album, Injustice for All, where they lowered the sound of the bass down to the point of non-existence. They made very clear by the fact that you can't even hear any bass at all on the record, when in the past three, the bass was so prominent that Cliff was gone. It resulted in a hollow, dry sound that a lot of people are still talking about to this day. People... Love the Injustice record for its songwriting, and it's a huge step forward in the world of heavy metal, but a lot of people just cannot get past the production sound on Justice because of the fact that there's just no bass in it, and it just sounds weird. But for all that, it does give Metallica their first mainstream notice. Yes, it was their best performing album to that point, and it led them to making their first music video for the song One. It became a huge hit on MTV. And this is when the band started to become a worldwide force. In fact, the following year, there was a brand new category that was added to the Grammys called Best Metal Performance. And a lot of the talk was that they added that category just to make sure that Metallica would get some kind of award and recognition because they deserved it. But then that would end up becoming a controversial moment as well. Because instead of Metallica winning, they gave the award to Jethro Tull. I don't know if you know who they are. I have no idea. They are about as far removed from heavy metal as you can possibly get. Like, why they even got nominated is head-scratching. But then they won. Everyone was saying that Metallica was going to win. And Alice Cooper is the one that reads the card. And you could tell that he has this look of, like, shock on his face as he reads Jethro Tull's name. That ended up just being another moment in Metallica's long list of controversial moments. But they don't let this disappointment stop them because then they come out with the Black Album. Yes, they had their revenge for sure. Fifth album. So the album is nicknamed the Black Album. It's not actually called the Black Album. It's just called Metallica. It's kind of the same way the Beatles have the White Album. Right. But it's called the Beatles technically. But because of the all-white cover, it's called the White Album. And the reason that the album became so successful is largely in part due to their pairing with producer Bob Rock, who had done huge albums with Motley Crue and Bon Jovi and other huge rock bands of that era. And he helped them streamline that sound and appeal to as wide of an audience as possible. A lot of hardcore thrash fans, though, were very angered by what they perceived as selling out, which is like the worst thing you could do in heavy metal. Of course. But the plan worked. They became the biggest metal band in the world, and pretty much right next to Guns N' Roses and Nirvana, at the time, the biggest band in the world. And in the future, the Black Album has gone on to be the best-selling metal album of all time. Even more than Master of Puppets? Yes. Crazy. Because there are a load of people that this is the only Metallica album they have. Yeah, that makes sense. Because this album really became the gateway album for an entire legion of metal fans. Like, you talk to someone that's a metalhead and you ask them what's the first metal record that they got into, there's a good chance that the Black Album is that one. Because it's accessible enough to where it's not going to scare you off, but still heavy enough to where it kind of leads you into a whole new world. 
But then just like any other band, after they hit this really big high, they start to kind of tail downwards. Yeah, so soon after Metallica hits big, grunge, alternative rock becomes the driving force in music. And they had a, a decision to make. And it was not an easy one. I've got to give them credit for this. This is a tough situation to be in. Right when you hit big, your genre goes out of style. Either they can continue to be rebels like they used to be, or they have to adapt to the times and continue to be commercially viable. And they chose the latter, which included some more controversial moments. Like, I, there's a huge landmark moment in metal when Metallica cut their hair. That doesn't seem like a big deal, but that was a huge deal. They lost a ton of fans when they cut their hair. And they also started to wear makeup as well, like started to wear eyeliner. Mm. Like they, they kind of went the full grunge alternative route. Got it. You hear in their music, they're continuing to strip away the metal for a more radio friendly sound. And yes, they drove away a lot of fans, even the ones that forgave them for making the Black Album and went, okay, new direction, I'm, I'm on board with this. By the time that Load and Reload came out, pretty much all of the heavy metal fans were gone, but they were just continuing to bring in the mass audience, the younger generation, the people that didn't grow up with the underground thrash scene and are going, oh, look at this. This is the new big band. We need to listen to whatever they're making. The Load and Reload albums have gotten a really bad rap over the years. Although now time has allowed fans to kind of revisit these albums, myself included. I used to hate these records, but kind of going back, I don't hate them as much as before. There's actually quite a bit on both albums that I really like, but everyone agrees that they're just not the same level as that, that first wave. And then we got the turn of the millennium and this brings on even more controversy. First was Metallica's now very famous public battle with the file-sharing platform Napster. I remember that. Yeah. The band accused not only the creators of Napster and the runners, but also every fan that used it of stealing their music. And of course, the fans were very unhappy about this because they felt that this was the big, greedy band that was concerned about saving every single dollar that they were losing when they have millions upon millions. And to a certain extent, I can see Metallica's anger because the reason they got so angry was because a song they hadn't even released yet was popping up on Napster. They hadn't even gotten the chance to debut it properly and for people to even buy it. I also read that their entire catalog was could be found on there. That's when they found out. And so they got nasty. And the whole thing just created this huge tabloid issue. And they just, the fans felt like they were being attacked by the band that they loved and, and followed. And then right on the heels of that, Jason Newstead leaves the band. And he just got to the point where he was so tired of not feeling like he didn't belong. And the final straw came when James Hetfield told him that he was forbidden from working on any other kind of side project because that's what he was wanting to do. Right. He had this other band to where he could express some other creative outlets. And James Hetfield told him, no, if you do that, you're out of the band because it obviously means that you love this more than you love Metallica. And then the band falls apart. Yes. This goes into the darkest period of the band and it produces an album called Saint Anger, which is regarded by many to be one of the worst metal albums ever made. Wow. Like... 
the album is atrocious. It's not even one of those things where it's just like to Metallica standards it isn't good. It is objectively terrible in every single aspect from songwriting to production to lyrics. Like, it's just terrible. So literally two albums from making the biggest album in the world. Yep. To all of a sudden making the worst album, quite possibly of all time. (laughs) Yes. It's one of the worst albums I've ever heard. I've only ever listened to it just to understand where it fits in the Metallica history. Like, I've never once turned it on because I want to listen to it. So then the band really kind of goes through this little soul-searching. Yes. uh, James Hetfield goes to rehab for alcohol addiction. The only positive thing I have to say about St. Anger is that the band, in a way, needed to make that record. Because when you listen to St. Anger, you hear a lot of demons being exercised. It's a lot of them getting their frustrations, the things that they've been dealing with either their whole lives or recently. There's one song that's very obviously about the fan backlash from the Napster deal. And if anything, it's an album they needed to make to get out of their system so they could go back to what they were doing best. Which, in the meantime, after the record was done... They found Rob Trujillo, who played with a crossover band called Suicidal Tendencies, as well as he played for Ozzy Osbourne for quite a while. Got him as their new bass player, and he's been with them ever since. I want to say he's now the longest tenured bass player that Metallica's ever had, which is crazy because he's only ever made two albums with them. My gosh. So with him, the band rejuvenates. and Yes, a very big reason being Rob, because Rob grew up as a Metallica fan. He's a little bit younger than the rest of the band, although he's not like a young guy. Mm. But he's a little bit younger, enough to where he was still like a teenager when Metallica's 80s material was coming Uh, out. So all the underground stuff. Yeah, he kind of started his musical career in the 90s. And he was the one that really encouraged them, go back to your roots. Listen to what made you great, and this is what the fans want. We need to make an album for the fans. And so in 2008, after a five-year hiatus, they returned with Death Magnetic, which a lot of people, including myself, saw as a return to form. It's got thrashy riffs, it's got long experimental songs, and it's got an aggression that really had been missing since... 88's And Justice For All. And ever since then, Metallica's been back on top. As far as we know, things are looking bright. But as we see in their history, nothing in Metallica lasts forever. Pretty sooner or later, they're going to make a controversial decision, either artistically or personally. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens with them in the future. I mean, they were just on tour. Yeah. So the last album, Hardwired to Self-Destruct, came out at the end of 2016, and they're still touring for that album, not just doing a random tour. It's still the World Wired tour. Wow. They're playing everywhere. That's what Metallica does. So to wrap this all up then, Lucas, give us some characteristics and things that if for someone who's never listened to Metallica before, what are some things that they need to know? You need to see them as the inventors of thrash metal. That's where they started off as. Thrash metal is one of the biggest and most important and popular subgenres of heavy metal. Heavy metal's got this endless tree of splintering subgenres, but thrash is like one of the golden subgenres, and Metallica created it. If they had just done that, they would have secured a very important spot in the history of heavy metal. But also, they were really the ones that brought true heavy metal to the public. Of course, we had the very commercial metal in the 80s with Motley Crue, Twisted Sister, and all right. that, but... 
it was a bit more pop than it was metal. Metallica was the first like true metal band to make it to that level. And they're really the only ones that ever have. And you've got to understand their place of that, of being the biggest metal band in the world. They're the figureheads of metal. They're the poster boys. No other band has been more responsible for introducing people to metal than they are. And they're only one of two metal bands right now in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The other one being Black Sabbath, because they're the ones that created heavy metal. Of course. And then as far as their characteristics, the thing with them is change. Every single album sounds incredibly different than the other one. There's no perfecting of a sound. The only one I can maybe argue is that Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets have a lot of similarities to each other. But besides that, every album has its very own distinct identity. And every member brings a unique flavor to the band, to the Metallica pot, to the stew. You've got James Hetfield's very famous grunts and yas that... Even people that don't know about Metallica kind of know about the that James Hetfield always does. And of course, you know, he's their main riff writer. He's their main lyricist. He's very important to the band. Lars brings that attitude and that craziness in the public persona of the band. And he's the soul. He's the most involved with the marketing, the mixing. He's the source of vision for the band. Kirk Hammett is synonymous with his wah pedal. I don't know if you noticed whenever you were listening to the songs, but just about every song in there has him just going crazy on the wah pedal at some point. for sure. And then Cliff Burton, when you actually identify the parts that he's playing in those first three records, you are completely blown away that it even is a bass. Because a lot of the time, his bass playing sounds like this really distorted guitar. And so he also brought the diversity to the band. He brought the literature to the band. He brought the classical influences and the Motown and the funk influences to the band. He was the renaissance man of the band. And so when you put all this together, you have a band that just writes tight, powerful riffs that despite all their heaviness is able to somehow write hooks. I don't know how they do it. And that's Metallica. So there you have it. All right, you heard it there. That is Metallica in a nutshell. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to talk about the six songs that we've picked to represent the legendary band Metallica. Stay tuned. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. Today we are talking about Metallica, and today we have six songs that represent the band. But before we get started, Lucas, why don't you tell us why we have six songs specifically? So the reason we have this segment is that I want to create a set of songs to allow us to further talk about the band in depth and about what they made. And the way that I'm picking these songs is that I want to have six songs that give you the best introduction possible to the band, while also at the same time creating a great flow from start to finish. So I'm not necessarily picking my six favorite songs or their six best songs or what I think are their six objectively best songs, but rather the six songs that A, give you a great introduction to the band, and B, also create a great flow from start to finish to where at the end you're emotionally satisfied. 
And so if you want to listen to these songs, check out the description for the episode and they will tell you how to find my Spotify playlist has all the songs there in order. And so if you've never heard these songs, definitely go check them out. If you've heard these songs before, still go check them out. You might hear something that you've never heard before and you might have a new context. So with that, Let's go ahead and jump to these songs. And just a reminder, with this episode, we're looking at their entire career. And so I'm picking songs to represent each era. So yes, there are going to be some very important songs that did not make the cut this time. Don't worry. We'll come back to them at some point. That gets us into our first song, Battery. Battery. Metallica was so good at starting their albums. Very interesting beginning. Oh, yes. Specifically, if you look at Ride the Lightning, Master of Puppets, and Justice for All, all three of their starting songs have a fairly similar structure. They kind of start with like a calm, almost eerie intro before they just hit you in the face with this nasty riff. And in my opinion, Battery is the best of those starting songs that they ever made. I mean, it starts off with this like very... Latin music-like intro. Uh-huh. And then, just like you said, it gets very metal-like Yes, right after that. It's one of the most metal songs they ever made. Like, if you've never listened to Metallica before, you're going to know very quick what this band is about when you're listening to this song. Yeah, this is exactly what I think of when I think of metal. Oh, yeah. The fast beats, that riff. That is what an incredible riff, and what an incredibly difficult riff to play. Having all those palm mutes with the triplets and... It's just a really unnatural sounding riff, but at the same time, it just it works when you throw in that double time drum groove. And in my opinion, this is a song that shuts all of the Lars critics who say that he can't play drums. I mean, like the double bass that he goes off on in this song and the breakdowns. At this time, it was revolutionary. There weren't a lot of drummers that were playing like this and really inspired a whole wave of drummers to try and match his ferocity and his speed. Funny that we're talking about speed because thrash metal, of course, is a lot about speed. Yes. And this song is a perfect example of this. Yes. And it also has another characteristic of thrash metal that I love so much, and that is the gang vocal chants. Yes. In my opinion... Most great thrash songs have this somewhere in the song. And Metallica always had great moments throughout their songs. When you've got everyone yelling, Battery! Battery! That's just, that's a hallmark of thrash right yeah, there. I think that's my favorite part about this song. There's so much grit in there, and then with the gang vocals, it just kind of really gives it that power. Yeah, it does. This song is what era this is representing. This is representing the Ride the Lightning slash Master of Puppets era, where they were on a very specific trajectory creative-wise. And so, um, and they were just at the top of their game. They were the best metal band in the underground scene when they were making these albums. And so, because this song is representing that album, we're not going to get any songs like Master of Puppets or For Whom the Bell Tolls or Fade to Black or Welcome Home Sanitarium, so it stinks. I wish I could put those songs on there, but to accomplish what I wanted to on this episode. I couldn't see a set starting without Battery right at the front. It's the perfect song to start this set with. It's also kind of hard to miss the hard rock influence in the solo. feels yes. very Van Halen-like. Yes, it does, and you can hear that. That wah pedal that Kirk loves yes. so much in that second solo. He definitely was a Van Halen student. That being said, that gets us into our next song, The Four Horsemen. Yes, this is our representative from the very first era of Metallica. 
This is coming off of their debut record, and this is a song co-written by Dave Mustaine, as half of that album was. Now, this is a great song. Oh, man. So this song was originally called The Mechanics, and it used to be a much uh, simpler, yet much faster and more aggressive song. And yet it's not as heavy as I was expecting, honestly. Yeah, this is a song that really showcases more of their progressive side. And even on their debut album, they were showing that they had a little more sophistication to their songwriting than some of the other metal bands were. I mean, it's a seven-plus-minute song that goes through a lot of different tempo changes and different sections and several different solos. Talking about sophistication, how about this pan guitar solo before it comes back into stereo? (laughs) Huh, I've never noticed that before. Justin, you always find these interesting things in these songs. I'm going to listen back to that and see if I can pick that up on that. But speaking of solos, that solo at the end of the song? Unbelievable. Oh, man. So this also shows me something else. And this is, I want to talk a little bit of a reason why Dave Mustaine was so angry at the band. Yes, he got kicked out of the band, but he gave them one request. He said, don't use my solos. Kirk Hammett didn't write the solos on that album. Mm, well, he le- still played them. He played them. He played how they appeared on the demos. Interesting. And that's what really ticked Dave off. So much so that he took the original version of The Mechanics and put it on his debut album. Just to show them that this is the better version of the song. <laughs> but Four Horsemen is, is better. I'll take your word for it. Yeah. I haven't heard the other one. so. Well, we'll again, we'll get to that on another episode. All right, that takes us into Cyanide, which, before you begin, I wrote 2008, question mark? Yes, it is. We're jumping from uh, the beginning of their career to uh, the most recent era of the band. And this is off of the Death Magnetic album. And again, this was an album where they were really rediscovering their roots. So a lot of the songs on here sound like they could have been on a classic Metallica record. Yeah, this is my favorite song on this list. That's interesting. I would have maybe picked something else. Like, this is a modern classic, yet it's still not one of those songs that a lot of people are going to think of when they think of Metallica. It's funny. You talked about how this is a little reminiscent of their old stuff. I feel like this is a little reminiscent of what at the time was in tune with culture and what was happening with music at the time. Yeah. Just with that new metal style. I think of breaking Benjamin when I hear this, just like Mm -hmm. with that melodic guitar line stuff and just like a lot of the chugs, like it's kind of funny what I initially thought of. That's why I said 2008. Yeah. To me, this song is, it's a great balance of a lot of the ambition that they had in the eighties with the more simplistic and mainstream songwriting that they acquired in the 90s. I think like it's a good mix because they've got some really zany parts in there. Like after the second chorus, when they do that weird like hit section, Mm -hmm. like that's actually something they had never done before to that extent to where like it took me a while to kind of figure out that pattern. And they do kind of like the drum solo section where he's doing those drum fills. Yeah. And uh, I also really love the uh, when it goes to that down bridge all of a sudden. Yeah, I love how they have that breakdown guitar solo as well. And then mm-hmm. right before they get back into the verse bass rhythm, which, ugh, speaking of which, that bass line that opens up in the beginning. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's my boy Rob. He is a boss. Yes, he is. And if you ever seen him play live, he is so fun to watch. He has, like, he has this crab walk where he, like, spreads his legs apart and he gets down like to where his 
butt's almost touching the ground. He just kind of like walks around while he's playing. Yeah, look it up. It's That's, it's amazing. Amazing. He's he's so fun to watch. But yeah, there's just there's so many twists and turns. Like the whole first half of the song is like a very standard, you know, verse, pre-chorus, mm-hmm. chorus, back to the intro, verse, pre-chorus. But I feel like the whole second half of the song is what really makes it interesting because it doesn't go in the places you think it's going to go. Even the chorus is not what you expect. Like, it feels like there's almost like a drastic change once that vocal chorus comes in. And it's Mm -hmm. just like this very aggressive sounding lyrics, very aggressive sounding vocals. And it almost kind of takes you by surprise. Because like, it's just like this little short break before the chorus like actually comes in. Yeah. That, call your name, boom. Yeah. Yeah. And then I love how it just, it climbs in intensity as you get towards the end. Where it's just like, when he comes back with that pre-chorus, but it's just like so much more in mm. your face. And you just, you definitely feel like the song is just heading to its logical end. And it just ends with that, ba ba ba. Which I love. And I just feel like it's such a great end for the first half of this list. Because once we get to the next song, we're definitely changing gears. Literally, because this next song is called The Unforgiven. Yes. Unforgiven. Um, I wanted to change moods here going into this next part. And uh, Unforgiven, to me, is the best choice to do that. A little power ballad here. Oh, yeah. Which my ears, thank you for the change. After those <laughs> first three songs, I was like, woo! See, I know, I know. There's actually been two sequels to this song. Metallica has made an Unforgiven 2 and an Unforgiven 3. Interesting. Unforgiven 3 being on Death Magnetic and it being the song that comes after Cyanide mm. on the album, which I think is what subliminally made me think of Unforgiven because I actually didn't realize I did this until afterward. And it was when I thought about it, I was just like, oh, wait, Unforgiven 3 comes after Cyanide. So I don't know. I think there might have been something subliminal going on there. But none of them have topped the original. The, the original Unforgiven is the best one, as sequels tend to never be better than the original. Yeah. So like we said, nice change of pace in the beginning. It kind of feels like a movie. That uh, that horn sound that you hear at the beginning mm-hmm. is pulled from some Clint Eastwood movie. Oh, course did you know that they open all of their songs with a score from i want to say it's from either the good the bad and the ugly or uh, fistful of dollars i did not know that uh ennio morricone is the composer that did those and he had a piece that plays in one of those i think it's in the good the bad and the ugly like when they're about to do the big standoff at the end mm-hmm. there's a song that plays called the ecstasy of gold and that's what they play at the beginning of every single show interesting so they love kind of that old western style well that's not something that i thought you would say western and metal (laughs) yeah they actually would really explore this more in the following albums they kind of almost started to turn like on load and reload they kind of started to become like this like this southern boogie rock band and that's kind of when i was just like uh this ain't working Mm. but this song is representing the black album And so this is an interesting take on the patented Metallica ballad structure. They had written three ballads before this, and they all follow the exact same structure, where you have light, calm verses and really heavy choruses. And then they eventually kind of climax into an all-out race to the finish. Kind of reminds me of the grunge scene. Yeah. And uh, Metallica wanted to flip the script on it. They wanted to instead flip it to where the verses were heavy, Yep. And the choruses were light. And literally, the whole song was, 
they wrote it just to experiment, just to see if they could. And the Unforgiven was born out of that. It wasn't that they were writing all these melodies first and went, okay, this is how it's going to go. It was literally they gave themselves a challenge going, can we write a song under these conditions mm. where we make heavy verses, light choruses? And so, um, and man, what a great experiment it turned out because this is one of my all-time favorite Metallica songs. When the acoustic guitar and the bass comes in in the beginning, it kind of almost reminds me of a Red Hot Chili Peppers song. Like, you think yeah. it's that, but then all the other stuff comes in, you're just like, oh, yeah, this is Metallica. Yeah. I also want to talk about what Bob Rock brought to this song. Sure. So Kirk Hammett's playing style was not, I would say, compatible with what Metallica was making for this album. A more straightforward heavy metal, almost hard rock record to mm -hmm. where it's kind of skirts the line of being either heavy metal or hard rock. Um, he's an all out metal player. You know, his solos are typically not known to be very soulful or that more feeling bluesy thing. He's more of, you know, if he's going to play blues, he's going to play blues really fast and with tons of wah. Yeah. And he was crafting this solo for The Unforgiven, and he, like, had this all mapped out in his head. It's just like, okay, I'm going to go to this and then this. And he presented to the band and to Bob, and they pretty much all told him in his face, this solo sucks. <laughs> this is not what the song needs. And Bob kept pushing him. He kept, like, irritating the crap out of him, just saying, nope, you're just you're not a good enough guitar player to pull this off. You can't do it. Like kind of, you know, really getting into his head. Like he kept saying stuff like, um, you obviously didn't do your homework. And, you know, I can tell when a guitarist hasn't prepared because they give me a solo that sounds like that. And Lars was right there with him, just going, Nope, this this isn't the right, which again, Lars was the he's he was there for he's there for every part of the process. He's even telling Kirk what kind of solos to play. And then Kirk finally got so frustrated and Bob just got in his face and he says, I want you to play the guitar player of the year solo right now. Go. And they hit the tape and he pulls out the solo that ends up on the album. And sure enough, it's one of his most famous solos ever. And it's one of the most revered solos in heavy metal. Back against the wall, as a perform on the spot. Yep. And that's pulls you. out a Hall of Famer. That's... that's <laughs> I just love that story so much because it's just like it, they knew that he had it in him, but they had to like almost like bring his – tear down his ego a little bit and just make him play from the heart again instead of overthinking it. Hmm. Well, this gets us into our fifth song, Bleeding Me. Yeah, we're, we're continuing the moody atmosphere here with, in my opinion, one of the most underrated songs Metallica ever made. Very grunge-like here. Oh, Yeah. You can definitely tell this is mid to late 90s. This is 1996, I believe, is when this song came out on uh, the album Load. So this is representing the Load Reload era, a uh, controversial era. But again, I think one that deserves more credit than what's been given to it. This is a brooding epic, is how I want to name this. And uh, it's a meditation on just man's inherent evil and kind of what we do to try and get it out of us. We want to bleed the bad out. Hmm. Because, again, Hetfield had a lot of darkness that he struggled with. Not just alcohol, but like stuff like his mom dying when he was a young teenager. And Cliff's death, he all kind of haunted him for the rest of his life. And he 
had a lot of darkness that he was always trying to get out of him. And I've, and bleeding me, he has said is, um, that him trying to do it on his own and kind of wishing that he could be a better person, but kind of finding out that, you know, it's no matter how much he tries to bleed it out of him, there's always more in there and it always goes deeper than he thinks. Well, the biggest thing that I picked out in this song is organ time. Mm-hmm. So you definitely have a lot of new influences coming in. I mean, just at that point, Metallica felt like they could do anything. Yeah. That they could make anything that they wanted. And that's always been Metallica's thing is they've never written for the fans. They've always written for themselves. And that's where they were at the time. And for me, though, this is one of the songs where it works. And it's a shame that it's kind of surrounded by a lot of lesser quality songs because this song is really great. And they even still perform this song fairly often, which shows that they believe in the song. And, you know, it's a song that's softer than a lot of what they had done before, but the emotional core of this song is really powerful, especially when he sings that chorus like, this isn't like, you know, I'm an angry metal guy. Like, this is a guy that you can kind of hear his anguish and when he's singing and kind of can't help but be affected by it. And then there's this incredible change halfway. Oh, yeah. The song goes in so many great directions. That heavy riff coming in. Mm, love that. And then that final chorus when Kirk's solo comes in there and he's just screaming, I can't take it. And then I also love how the song ends it doesn't it kind of catches you off guard you think that they're gonna yeah. end with this no it's just floor to the floor and then they go to this last verse yeah and uh it kind of ends with this really chill feel and kind of is really haunting the whole time that i listen to this song i really kind of just imagine like this really depressed person or angry person like in their room who's cutting themselves and then just like going off in a tantrum and just like smashing the entire room Mm -hmm. and then you have the stillness afterward of just kind of the the aftermath and you're just kind of like oh man what did i do which man that ending sets us up perfectly for our final song which is one my favorite metallica song The song that introduced me to heavy metal. I'm not going to lie. I really wasn't sure exactly what this song is. What do you mean by that? Oh, it's kind of interesting how it starts off with the firing guns. Yeah. And then, of course, you get into this long instrumental intro, which, of course, very Mm Metallica-like. But then... You kind of get surprised by how happy it gets right before the verse. Yeah, that little guitar. Yeah. Like, I almost forgot that this is a Metallica song. Uh-huh. Yeah. This was this was the, the beginning of their, um, of their rise because, again, this was the first song that they got a music video for. And, yeah, this, this was the song that hooked me. I heard this on Guitar Hero 3, which I'm not ashamed to say that. Mm. And I remember this was the first time that a metal song, like, hooked me and went, I gotta listen to this again, and went and bought it on iTunes. And I remember hearing this and going, this is it, I've found my music. And a couple months later, I saw the album, which was Injustice for All, and which uh, era this song is representing. 
And I remember seeing it in the store and like being really scared to buy it because I was just like, (laughs) is this CD going to be evil? Are they going to be like praising Satan and (laughs) cursing every other word? Like this was my naive ninth grade self that knew nothing about heavy metal. I just knew that one was an amazing song. And so I was, I talked myself into getting, I was just like, okay, I'm going to get it. And that album changed my life. And I don't like say that as an exaggeration. It changed mm. my life. This and is just such a strange to song to me. It's just, there's so many different facets to it. Like even the guitar solo sounds so poppy right before yeah. it gets heavy again. And I'm mm-hmm. just like, what is happening here? This contains my favorite song structure, which I like to call the slow burn, mm. where the song does nothing but climb. There's no ups and downs. It's not gets heavy, gets light, which, I mean, it does that a little bit, but every time it resets, you kind of feel like you've moved up a little bit. And it's not even like, it doesn't reset with the dynamics. It resets with, like, the type of notes they're playing, the tone. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, to me, is what kind of, like, threw me into a tizzy at first because, like, you're, you know, having listened through this whole list, you're kind of expecting, like, this roller coaster of up and down, and then... Mm-hmm. Instead of going up and down, you're like this one's kind of just going left, right, up, down, uh, sideways, upside down. But but still, in in some way, you're still continuing to go up and up yes. and up and up, and you're kind of waiting. Okay, where's the drop going to happen? Yeah. And um, before we get into that, I want to just real quick talk about what the song is about. So it was based off a book and eventually a film called Johnny Got His Gun, about a soldier that steps on a landmine. He loses his arms, his legs, his sight, his speech, and his hearing. But he is constantly in pain and he feels everything. Yikes. And the only thing he wants is to die because he can't tell anyone. Like, no one knows that he's in pain. And they're just trying to keep him alive. And he's like, no, as long as you keep me alive, the more I suffer. And so in his mind, it's just the whole song is his inner thought process of just going... Oh no, I'm trapped. I'm it's almost like I'm in prison and I'm gonna suffer for the rest of my life. That final tension release that you talked about, I feel like happens like around that four thirty mark because yeah. it just goes full on heavy metal. So right when there. the when the 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 famous machine gun drum groove with yeah. that with that double bass. Once cause I mean you you kind of get that heavier section right before where they're and you kind of just like, okay, I see where this is going, but when he switches to that double bass groove, that's the moment I remember the first time I played it on Guitar Hero, he got to that and I was just like, uh oh, I'm screwed. <laughs> cause this is about to get crazy. And then yeah, like when that guitar comes in, like that's brilliant songwriting. To make your instrumentation sound like machine gun fire. Mm-hmm. And when James starts that, when he starts barking that darkness, imprisoning me section, it's one of the greatest moments just in metal history, in my opinion. Like, that's iconic. And just from that point on, the song is just like, just goes to this other level that you just, every time you think it can't get more intense, it does. Like, the start of that guitar solo. Ooh, man, it's just gold, <laughs> absolute gold. I don't even know what else to say because I just, I love this song so much. Like, until Bohemian Rhapsody changed my life again, this was my favorite song mm. of all time. And with that is the end of our six songs for Metallica. 
But when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more, and we've got a bonus song for you guys, so stay tuned. Welcome back, everybody, to the Good Music Podcast. We just wrapped up six songs that represent the legendary metal band Metallica. But before we end, we've got a bonus song for you. Lucas, what is the bonus song? The bonus song is a song from a either lesser-known artist or an artist that maybe only has one or two big songs, like a one-hit wonder, or an artist that I wouldn't dedicate an entire episode to, but an artist that still has some great music to it. And so I like to usually give a little spotlight to those kinds of songs, but I also like for the bonus song to have some kind of connection to the main artist of the episode. So with this episode, I picked a song by a very new metal band called Power Trip and their song Executioner's Tax, Swing of the Axe. And what's the connection here? So pretty much Power Trip is right now leading the thrash metal revival that's been going on the last couple years. Thrash is back in style right now. And Power Trip is kind of at the head of this new wave. They could become the new Metallica of our generation. So do you know about Loudwire? I don't, actually. So Loudwire is kind of like the uh, official, or to me at least, kind of like the official news space and media outlet for all things hard rock and heavy metal. I've learned a lot of what I know about the genre through Loudwire. So they're like an online site that they're always doing articles and album reviews, and they do a lot of lists, including an end-of-year list. And um, Power Trip's second album, Nightmare Logic, which is where this song comes from, they said was the best metal album of 2017. Wow. That's high praise. Yeah, it's what turned me on to them. I was just like, well, Loudwire's saying they're the best metal band of the year. I gotta listen to this album. And man, it is an incredible record. These guys are going to go places if they play their cards right. And so Executioner's Tax was like the big single off of the album. And it sounds like a song right from the 80s. It's a very interesting blend of metal, hardcore, and even punk. Yes, they've... They borrow probably the most from Anthrax, which had the most crossover in their sound. Mm. Uh, so I can definitely see that. You're, and you're absolutely right. They do have some of that uh, hardcore punk mixed in there, which is kind of where Thrash's roots are. But some Thrash bands carry those roots a little deeper than others. Well, and in the case of this song, there's quite a bit of aggression. <laughs> oh, Yeah. I would say kind of the um, the newness that they bring to it is in the vocal style. It's got yeah. a bit harsher of a sound than what you would typically hear in a thrash band, minus for maybe, say, like Slayer. But this song is, in a way, kind of short and sweet, like a yeah. pop song style. No guitar solos. No guitar solos. Uh, it's just a lot of great groove. Like, the that guitar riff is so thrash like that is a signature thrash riff that i just cannot believe was not made in the 80s and just kind of the muddy production and the gang vocal chants a staple staple as as we now know um i mean pretty much they're kind of basing a lot of their sound on nostalgia with enough new elements to make it really interesting and nostalgia sells if it's done correctly, and I think the Power Trip definitely captured the right sound. Well, there you heard it. Power Trip is on the way up, and according to Lucas, could quite possibly be the next Metallica. Could be. We'll see. So, as someone that I 
sure has really never listened to Metallica before. What never. did you think? What did you think after this set of songs? I think you and I talked about this a little bit earlier, but I think one of the things that really kind of surprised me about Metallica, especially some of the earlier stuff, really more ACDC-like than I was anticipating. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not what I thought metal was going to be like, with the exception of Battery. But everything else really was not not what I was expecting when we talked about Metallica. One interesting thing that you'll probably like is that after listening through this list, it actually kind of made me go back and listen to Iron Maiden to try and, and even Slayer too, honestly, to try and compare the three different styles. And it was very interesting to find that very drastically different. Yes. And after listening to all three, I think I can honestly say that I would prefer Iron Maiden. Well, you're in my boat. I mean, I love Metallica. They're they're near and dear to my heart, but just there's something about Iron Maiden that just ticks them just a little bit higher for me. Iron Maiden's got a bit more of the the cult metal status, but, I mean, Metallica, I would say, is the only metal band bigger than them. So, I mean, it, they, they are definitely very close as far as their popularity and their quality. Although, again, I agree with you. I think that Iron Maiden's just got a little something special in there that just ticks them up just a little bit. But still, there's really no knocking on Metallica. I mean, they're one of the most legendary, if maybe the most legendary thrash metal bands of all time. At oh, least yeah. one of the big four. Mm-hmm. They're the leaders of the big four. And USA Born and Bred. That's right. California boy. Well, most of them. You've got Lars that was born in Denmark. Sure. But, I mean, you know, they started in, in the U.S., so yeah. they're an American band. Majority rules. Well, that's it for this episode of Metallica. Again, thank you so much for listening to us. Um, please hit that subscribe button. We've got new episodes every Monday morning, 9 Central. And there's a link in the description where you can donate to help support this channel. Check out our Facebook page. And if you know anyone that would enjoy this podcast, please share it with them. We want to continue to grow and go into exciting things as we enter into the year of 2020. I think that it's going to be a really great year for us. And I'm excited to eventually tell you about what all we've got going on. So thank you so much for listening. I'm Lucas. And I'm Justin. Keep on listening to good music.